This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. You are listening to 3RRR. A huge thank you to the team from Radiotherapy for bringing us through almost 11 o'clock. They were early today. Good, very well-behaved group they are. <laughs> I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with me is Dr. Lauren. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? You were here bloody early this morning. I know, I know. <laughs> well, see, my, my baby had his first overnight sleepover last night with the grandparents, so I literally woke up this morning and went, I, like, I can do anything. I can make my own breakfast. I can wander around, and so that's why I was so early. Like a regular human. <laughs> I know. I she know. was just wandering around. I know, I know. Like, help. I was just going to strangers' houses saying, do you want me to feed your baby? You know, I'm feeling a bit lost. <laughs> okay, probably going a bit far there. Uh, Dr. Ray, good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Good to see you. Good to see you too. And in the middle here we have Dr. Alia. It's her last show before she's um, going off on some breeding program. Oh, I don't know, something like that. <coughs> some experiment, I don't know. It's coming to fruition now. So, now, you know, now in about do- a week and a half. So. I have to say, do- do- Dr. Ray and I were very impressed when uh, Dr. Ailey came into the studio this morning because we weren't expecting her necessarily to come. She's very close to giving birth, so close that she bought her own towel and put <laughs> it on the chair. So I don't want to ruin the triple R chairs. Come on. I mean, you know, chairs below, but you can never be too careful. Look, I, you know, put it to you this way, if, you did, if you're willing to give birth on air, I mean, we've been trying to do this for the radio. I'll give you years. a call at three o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. You, can bring down I, you, you would have loved the conversation I had with my wife's obstetrician um, about four years ago when my second son was born. It was a Saturday Arvo. And it was Radiothon the next day. Oh. And I, I sort of I, I went quietly to him and said, Look, dude, is there any chance you can speed this up? <laughs> <laughs> I need to be somewhere tomorrow morning at eleven o'clock. Now, fortunately my son was born a couple of hours later, but it was like I was starting to get real worried. Oh, I thought, oh my god. You know, with that much pain medication stuff, would she really know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, they just just zipped out for an hour. And everything's got to be timed around this show. Radio, I mean, come on. It's not just any show. It was a radio exactly. thing. You know, it's, it's a crucial week. I mean, I, I, you know, I eat pineapple and honey for three months prior to that to make sure I don't lose my voice. It's a really important time for the station. And babies have to wait. Yeah, that's yeah, right. I, I, I could just <clears throat> back no, up there, baby. No, dear, I, I was here. Yeah. No, 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 no. I had to run to the loo. No, no, yeah, I was yeah, here for I was the here. Yeah. I was here for the whole thing. It felt like I was gone for three hours, but really yeah. it was just yeah, three minutes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I got more in trouble just for thinking it than doing it. Yeah, that's it's it. the thought, thought crime. Anyway, let's get into some news because mm-hmm. if we don't hurry, we might not get Ailey's news out. This is true. Or we'll have other news about Ailey. Yeah, yeah. exactly, exactly. Dr. Lauren, what do you got for us? Uh, so there was another uh, very cool thing coming out of Germany this Thursday. So they actually turned on the world's largest artificial sun in Cologne. So uh, it's called Sinlight. Um, I'm assuming they've got a German name for it as well, but the yeah westernised version is Sinlight of the the thing and it's basically a large uh, setup which has got 149 spotlights of xenon short arc lamps so they're the lamps that are usually used in cinemas and what they've actually done is have all those spotlights focused on a 20 by 20 centimetre spot mm-hmm. and that gives uh, 10,000 times the amount of solar radiation that would normally fall on that spot just from the sun and heats it up to 3,000 degrees Celsius Nice. the reason they're doing this is not just for sun tanning or something like that that, which you would fried ants. Yeah, um. exactly. It's a very good fried ant machine. No, they're um, they're actually using it for electrolysis. So they're trying to um, make hydrogen by splitting water. 
And obviously that's um, of interest because we think that hydrogen might be a very good fuel for the future because uh, obviously hydrogen, when you burn it, there's no carbon emissions. So it is very interesting and obviously it's a very large-scale, impressive kind of looking um, project. But at the moment, to do that, to, to heat up that area to 3,000 degrees Celsius to... to get the electrolysis happening, um, it actually uses as much electricity in four hours that a four-person household would use in a year. Wow. So it's not yeah. going to be a long-term solution. <laughs> but what they're hoping is that they'll eventually be able to use similar sort of technology to actually harness the sun's power mm. Uh, mm. and then, you know, use that to, to produce hydrogen for fuel. Yeah. And, and in a way, I mean, some of the solar panel systems actually do that now mm. where they focus sunlight down to heat water, the yeah. water, essentially the T- turn turbines. So it's, yep. I mean, this is a more sophisticated, smaller version, but yeah, it's not yeah. that dissimilar. Yeah, I mean, well, that's there's, it. There's a, there's a test uh, plant in Spain mm. that actually it's, it focuses on a power mm. tower where all the mirrors track together to focus the sunlight mm. on, on, on one, mm. one yeah. little yeah. That's on generator. that uh, molten salt stuff, isn't it? Yeah, is well, that, like yeah. liquid sodium is yeah, an amazing heat transfer. I mean, mm. the fluid. We know if we throw sodium in water, it explodes, and that's an old chemistry mm. trick in, in, in classes. But yeah, liquid sodium, yes, it should it reacts with water but it's an amazing heat transfer fluid yeah. it's really efficient much more efficient than water or oil yep so, so uh, could they do this this focusing the the heat lamp things with with say solar power or some sort of renewable yeah, energy what, is that what they're looking for uh, i think that would be the idea like I, i'm not an expert in that field but i, th- I think um that, that mm. is sort of the idea that eventually you can actually use yeah more sustainable sorts of mm. ways of, of doing it mm. um because it is interesting i mean you know obvi- obviously they knew that it would use that much electricity to have this set up yeah, but it's still yeah. worth you know mm. Investigating the technology to see how it can and, change it in the future. And the reality is, who cares how much electricity mm. it uses if it comes from the right mm. source? That's right. That's I mean, you know, if you've got a whole lot of solar panels sitting out in the field and well, they're, they're running the signal, I don't care. But exactly. that seems to be the biggest problem with a lot of these technologies mm. at the moment is that they consume more than they yeah. Yeah. generate. Yeah. So getting past <clears> that. That's kind it. of threshold is is the hard part. But yeah. I feel it's it's lots of interesting stuff. I feel like that we're close. Yeah, you know? that's it. That's it. Well, I had a very interesting discussion the other day with someone about batteries, actually, in, in sort of similar mm. sort of, mm. you know, similar discussions, you know, it's sort of all these interesting things coming out and, you know, like it feels like we actually are on a bit of a cusp. But then mm. he laughed at me and said, well, yeah, we've been saying that for the last you know, yeah. 20 years. And mm. Well, yeah. <laughs> solar power, solar mm. panels are actually cheap to make now mm. they have been scaled yep. up yeah the matter is any if we were to say wow solar power mm. is going to be great it will still take 10 years to 15 years to change the yeah. energy infrastructure mm. to use that in any country mm. yeah uh, and that's one of the lead times but you know there's always this balance we in engineering we see that you can do anything if you have a cheap energy source and it doesn't yeah. have to be efficient it just has to be economically viable and mm. so if you have enough energy to do it it doesn't really matter where it comes from. Mm. And yeah. so that's an interesting one. I guess I would imagine for the sun one, was it they were focusing light to split water as opposed to electrolysis. So maybe there's something yeah. about that approach is more efficient than yeah. trying to run electricity through water yeah. to make hydrogen. So maybe that was one part of it is they were trying to skip one of the steps yeah. in traditional water splitting, which yeah. uses electricity. I don't know quite how they mm. do all that. Maybe they used a photo catalysis or something. It's interesting yeah, stuff. Yeah. I mean, any discussion about energy, I mean, one of the things I always remember is the fact that I'm not in a field getting my mm. own food. Mm. And at the end of the day, that is because of energy. Yeah. 
uh, the the abundance of energy and, and yes the sources we have in that a lot of them are very problematic and so forth but mm. that freedom that we have to not have to work really hard to mm. make food to eat mm. every day or shelter i mean this is all because of the abundance of energy in our society and we're going to have to work out where it comes from to mm. sort things out but no one wants to give up to that, that freedom that they mm. have. And it's great so. that it's actually, I, you know, I think, you know, unfortunately we had all those, obviously the shortages in, in Adelaide and, and South Australia. But, I mean, the benefit with that has been that, you know, this, it's, a, it's becoming a, a more common topic, you know. So my grandma the other day was sort of you know, talking to me about wave power and, and things like that. And so well, that's, cool. that's impressive. It's really interesting. But, you know, and, she, and she's picking that up because it's becoming a more general yeah. topic of conversation. It certainly has in the news in the last... Well, yeah, last couple of months. Yeah, least, yeah. Which is great. No, it's fantastic. Good to have that conversation. Speaking of a person who knows all things climate, Dr Ailey, what do you got for us? Uh, well, I've got something climate. Well, meteorology, actually. Okay. So have to say, last Thursday, one of my favourite days of the year, World Meteorological Day. Oh, I actually oh, wow. meant to message yes. you. Yes. <laughs> Happy I didn't get the memo. I, yeah, I, 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 I didn't there get was, that one. There was it. World Meteorological Days on the uh, the 23rd of March every year. Is that right? So, well, right near the equinox, you see. So oh, it's really okay. exciting. Well, the equinox was taken. Well, yeah, I think so. <laughs> like well, it kind of shifts from a day, you know, and you have to God damn it, International Women's Day is yeah. on equinox. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so it was World Meteorological Day last Thursday. So that was exciting. You know, we all nerded up and in our department and... Uh, Cupcakes were flowing and things more like that. Yeah, more than normal. That's right. <laughs> that's Are right. they weather-themed cupcakes, like clouds? Yeah, and... totally. Oh, that's awesome. Absolutely. Yeah. Of course. Cyclones, tornado right. cupcakes. Yeah, that's oh. right. Wow, yeah. no, we didn't try that one. Okay. But well, <laughs> so, something tells me just because of the way you pipe icing on the cupcakes, they were all cyclones. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that's yeah. right. Oh, look, that's a cyclone right. cupcake. Jesus, know, can't someone do a roll cupcake. cloud or something? Just well, speaking of roll clouds, perfect segue, Shane. That wasn't planned. That wasn't planned. But... There was a big celebration this World Meteorological uh, Day because 11 new types of clouds were added to the International Cloud Atlas. About time. Wait, too. I know. wait does that put it up to 15 or are we... No. <laughs> so, 12. Well, I'll tell you yeah. <laughs> So this, this cloud atlas, I do, I, you know, it, it's a bit of a, pardon the pun, puff piece. Yeah. Oh. Oh. Thank you. Thank oh, it's it's our last show for a while. <laughs> You can forgive me. Um, but the International Cloud Atlas, I think, has been around since the late 1800s, and it's basically a classification um, system for clouds. And mm. meteorologists around the world use it, and they have for a very long time, as meteorology has moved from more of a kind of qualitative, descriptive, observational thing, um, you know, back in the, the late 1800s, right through to the present day as we move through the 70s and supercomputers and, and mm. actually doing diagnostic weather forecasts. Mm. So... This is also the first update in 30 years. So they don't wow. add new clouds very often. Mm. Uh, they take a long time. And by they, I mean this is the, the United Nations uh, World Meteorological Agency. Mm. They have yep. to approve all this. They're pretty progressive, apparently. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> a bunch of guys sitting around in cardigans just <laughs> <Yeah>. in clouds. <laughs> Cognac, that's smoking right. pipes. Yeah, that's right. Oh, yeah. Cigars, thank you. Right. <coughs> yeah, cigars. <laughs> that's right. So it's the first update in 30 years. And, and the way that we classify clouds basically is as follows. We have 10 genera, which basically talks about the appearance and position of clouds. So if you've ever heard of clouds like cirrus or stratus mm. or cumulus, so that's you, you, that's, you that's, done. Kind of, that's all yeah. I know now. Yeah, well, so so cirrus is more than that. Well, cumulonimbus oh, is actually a subtype. It's um, interesting. Mm. So that's a, that's a yeah. species okay. of cloud. Oh, sorry. Okay, okay. I, I read it in a Dr. Seuss book. Yeah, no, uh, nice, nice. So super, cumulonimbus, <laughs> for those who don't know, are those big thunderstorm clouds. Yeah. So they're those cool. big thunderheads. And that's actually underneath the genera. That's a, that's a oh, species okay. of cloud. So the, the kind of broad subtypes are classified by appearance and position. So your cirrus are your 
really, really high ice clouds that are usually quite thin and wispy. Uh, then you've got your cumulus, which are your puffy clouds. Cumulus, I believe, means puffy in Latin. Mm-hmm. And uh, then you've got your stratus, which are kind of those low clouds that you get on grey, drizzly days mm. in Melbourne. Um, plus another, you know, a bunch of other varieties. Then you get your species. So that talks about shape and structure, so things like the cumulonimbus, okay. um, which is the big thundercloud, mm. which is a type of cumulus. <coughs> and then you get your varieties, which talk about transparency and arrangement. So mm-hmm. you can get all sorts of different types of these clouds and they kind of morph in one into the other. But the exciting thing here is there is one new species of cloud. Shane mentioned the roll cloud. That's exactly I what love this, the roll cloud. That's exactly what this new species is. So wow. a roll cloud is quite an independent um, kind of cloud that forms on its own. It's not part of another cloud. Yep, it's the shape of a Chico roll, which is, I believe, where yeah. the name came from. That's exactly right. <laughs> is, it, is that true? Or no. Not? <laughs> <laughs> I got so excited there. I'm like, really? <laughs> Do you so, know, uh, you, what, going, uh, you know, more amazing than science is how the gullible Dr. Lauren <laughs> <laughs> I know. So, I'm like, wow. Chico Roll, that's right. The World Meteorological Agency <laughs> named it yeah. after a Chico Roll. That's and the right. three of us, I can just say, we were very slow there because we could have had her believing that for the rest of her life. Called everything in you know, all clouds have Latin names, so these are called uh, volutus clouds, which means rolled mm-hmm. in, in cool. Latin. Uh, so these are actually created in the atmosphere when you get what we call an undular bore in the atmosphere. So you kind of get this little stationary wave turning over and creating this cloud. You see them up in the, the Northern Territory at particular mm. times of year. Uh, sometimes you see them out the front of thunderstorms, but they're really beautiful. It's just like this yeah, thin, phenomenal, thin kind of. Um, yeah, rolled. Well, I, I like cloud to think of it. It's, it's, it's like a it's like a wave. It's it is. Like, it it's is like a wave. an ocean wave. It is, and it's exactly that. Of that's course, exactly but it looks it like is. an ocean wave in the sky. And it just looks fantastic. Yeah, yeah. So that's 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 exactly what it is. So that's the new species, and then they also added about five new supplementary features and stuff as well. So mm. that's things like uh, <clears> what we call Kelvin Helmholtz waves, which also look like ocean waves. Those are pretty spectacular, mm. and those happen when you get uh, very fast moving air over slow moving air. It overturns the air, mm. you get a lot of turbulence and you get literally what look like those classic ocean waves in mm. the sky. They're actually wow. very rare. If you've ever seen one, that's pretty lucky because mm. you don't see them very often. They only last a few minutes and disappear, oh. but they're pretty. Things like wall clouds at the bottom of thunderstorms, which are kind of these yep. stacked, mm. dark, mm. they just look like a wall, hence the reason yeah. they're called wall clouds. Mm. Uh, fall street clouds, which are the ones in the high cirrus where you can often get uh, airplanes punching through the clouds and leaving like a big hole mm. in oh. the cloud. So, um, yeah, yeah, lots of different types and supplementary things and species and all up, 11 new clouds. It's very exciting for us uh, in the weather community. It's so how many, are, how many are there now, actually? Well, in terms of... Well, there's 10 genera and in terms yeah. of the subspecies and things like that, there's probably about 15 species yeah. and about... Uh, of the varieties and stuff, there's yep, a whole yep. heap more. Yeah. And then, you know, sometimes they're a bit of this and a bit of that. And, That's it. You know, so... Oh, they're very cool. And I, I remember when I was um, in physics years ago at Melbourne mm. Uni, mm. Um, in the photo, next to the photocopier, mm. someone had put one of the cloud posts yeah, right. There. And I remember I used to try and remember all remember this. Remember the clouds, yeah. Yeah, and I remembered probably the same two that Ray mentioned yeah, before. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> After 10 years. Well, some, some are more spectacular than others. I mean, people don't get yeah. that excited about stratus, I have no, to say. No, stratus. <laughs> what? You know, seriously? You want your own class? Se- no. se- seriously? Yeah. Seriously? Oh, seriously? Seriously? Sorry, the puns are coming Jeez. out in force oh, today. <laughs> Save us, Dr. Ray. So, uh, right, so um, <clears throat> I wanted to talk about king snakes. 
which are um, they're a North American constrictor snake. And uh, when I was a kid, I, I actually had, was really interested in, in reptiles, and, and my parents wouldn't let me get a snake. My dad grew up on a farm, and he had an aversion to snakes. So the compromise was I ended up with a, a green iguana who went from eight inches to five feet. Oh. And, and, his, and I kept on telling them a snake would have been easier, but I had a five-foot green iguana named George. Uh, he was like trained, kind of litter trained, and he didn't live in a cage. And wow, oh, they're, awesome. they're great pets. Did you freak out the neighbors with that? Oh yeah, it was great on Halloween because yeah, I used to totally. answer the door with him on my shoulder. Yeah, oh, wow, uh, a five foot iguana on your shoulder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. Did you take him for walks? Because at five foot, you could. You yeah, well, leave. he's more. They're more arboreal, so ah. give them to walk. But uh, there, were, <laughs> there were some issues about house drapes when he was little younger and holes oh, in the house drapes because they, they they climbed to the highest point in the room. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Um, anyway, so <laughs> always always had an interest in reptiles, and and so king snakes are, are these gorgeous snakes that have a black, yellow, and red pattern on them, uh, similar but not quite the same as coral snakes, which are venomous. Now, in Australia, you don't really. You, you don't get excited about, oh, look, it's a snake. It's probably venomous. Don't touch it, mm-hmm. unless it's like a carpet python. Um, but constrictors, there's there's quite a few species of constrictors other than, than pythons in North America, and the king snake's quite interesting. So it's a, it's, a smaller, it's a smaller constrictor, and perhaps another very common one is the rat snake, mm-hmm. which is also a constrictor in, the, in, in, in North America. So what's interesting is, predatory-wise, normally bigger predator, the predator's bigger than the smaller animal. It, it, then it's prey. And so the bigger it is, it, eats, it, it won't eat something bigger than it. Mm-hmm. Um, snakes can be, particularly constrictors, can be cannibalistic, so they can eat other snakes. Mm. And king snakes, <clears throat> interestingly, eat snakes bigger than themselves. And that's quite unusual in, in, in the snake world. Hmm. Including um, venomous ones? It, uh, they eat other constrictors yeah, their okay. size mm. uh, that are bigger than them. And the example is they'll eat rat snakes, which are significantly bigger than them. And so this, uh, this set of researchers at Missouri and, and, and Louisiana actually studied um, six different species of snakes. They looked at 180 of them, three king snake species, three rat snake species, to try to understand why the king snake eats them more. Because... Mm. The muscle mass, the amount of pressure those muscles can apply, scales with strength, mm-hmm. uh, scales with size. So mm-hmm. there's no advantage there. And what mm-hmm. they found was the king snake is just much better at applying constriction pressure. Mm-hmm. And, and so if you've ever, you, you always see news flashes of some large constrictor eating either something, some other prey. If you think about how you, in your mind's eye, when you go back and you see a big python eat something, while it constricts its prey, it's not a very neat package of how it caught it. Mm. King snakes wrap around their prey. They look like a coiled spring. Mm. And so they're able to apply much more constriction pressure because their pattern is way more organized and, and, and they get much more distribution and squeezing. And so that's how they're able to take over these, these larger snakes as well. Mm. Uh, that's cool stuff. And, and so I, I went, oh, wow. It's just literally how it, how it, it turns into a coil. So if they do that, you know, obviously snakes are, you know, long and thin Mm -hmm. to be able to coil around so tightly. But what if they were trying to, you know, eat some sort of mammal or something that's not as nicely Oh, no, they actually, they're pretty good. Like, so the pictures I saw were Mm. just examples of a rat snake and a king snake eating a mouse. Mm, Okay. Uh, And and the king snake, it was, the the rat was clearly in the coils of the spring and it was neat and tidy. And you're like, oh, how could it have a chance? Whereas the rat snake was kind of, you know, it's just barely got a couple loops around the rat and... uh, Cool stuff. Cool stuff. Uh, and just remember, for kings, not that it's a big problem in Australia, but so because king snakes and coral snakes have the same color pattern, but in a different order. Red on black means it's okay. 
if yellow touches red, then it's a poisonous coral snake, and don't try to pick it up. <laughs> so red and yellow together, don't yeah. touch. Yeah. Right. Red and yellow. And I think your rule before is if in Australia, just don't touch. Yeah. 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 Just, just keep away. Keep away. Yeah. Unless you're in a pet shop. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, now, I just thought I'd quickly mention, um, you know, Canada has everyone's favourite Prime Minister. Yes. Oh, just sure. They're all loving, well, everyone loves him. Yep. Everyone yep. loves him. Well, they've released their, um, their budget. Uh, on the 22nd of March. And it's interesting because there was a big promise to really fund innovation and, you know, pulling that part of Canada up. And I think this is partly, you know, well, the guys down south aren't doing it anymore, so we might as well. You know, there's there's a bit of um, sort of Trump <coughs> Trumpism happening there. Mm-hmm. But the, the funny thing is, in doing so, they haven't actually done anything for fundamental science funding, and they're copping a lot of flack mm. because essentially there's been a freeze on science funding into this year. Now, you might think, okay, now Canada did, the Canadian government did put in a lot of extra money for fundamental science in the previous year, bringing it up to what they thought was an appropriate level, but to not then increment it year to year mm. is a real cut to science. So, uh, good old uh, Justin's not making any so friends over said, there at the moment. You said fundamental science, though. Is it is it kind <coughs> yeah. of all applied science? Or well, is so it... so they put they put a lot of money into the sort of innovation chain into yeah. that that later part. Yeah. But the fundamental bedrock yeah. that really makes a society churn in yeah. twenty or thirty years, yeah. they've frozen that money. Now, to be to be fair. Well, I'll be subtly fair here. <laughs> there is there is a thing called the Fundamental Science Review going on at the moment in Canada, and everyone knows in government if you want to delay funding, call for a review. Yeah. <laughs> Let's not be too cynical. Maybe they are doing some good stuff there with the review, but it's not a good message. And, and quite a few scientists, this article is out of um, you know the Nature News site, and they're pretty pissed off mm. um, after you know what seemed to be a good start. Mm to after just one year oh we're back to that again mm-hmm. so it's a bit disappointing but uh, i mean it, it's good to see this sort of stuff hitting the news around the world actually well, it's also interesting because uh canada's <coughs> structure for its fundamental science funding is not dissimilar from australia's yeah, scale yeah, and yeah. approach indeed so uh, it's yeah so look great great to hear that there's um there's some interesting stuff going on with regards to innovation and getting you know that sort of stuff going but don't do it at the expense of the fundamental science. So ho- hopefully the the voices will get back to um, Justin when he's not fixing his hair. And uh, <laughs> he's, a very, he's, he's quite a man, you know. Yes. And, um, and, and they'll make some changes in, in next year, year's budget for the scientists in Canada. And although I will say they have um, put out this new program to recruit um, high-level researchers um, from offshore. I did see I'm this. sure that has yeah. nothing to do with the US no, either. No, <laughs> a lot of people moving north of the border. Perhaps. Good, yes. good opportunity to recruit some That's of the US's <laughs> best researchers. So That's they have right. put a bit of money into that, which yeah. is interesting. Although it's re, it's you know rebadge money from yeah. other sources. Yeah. In the studio with us now is Dr. Carla Hart. She's from the Monash Biomedical Discovery Institute at Monash University. Carla, welcome to Triple R. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Now you're um, you're a very lucky person in that you are the first, I believe recipient of the Outstanding Women in Science Fellowship from Monash University's Biomedical Discovery Institute. Congratulations. Thank you very much. I feel very lucky. Yeah, look, it's fabulous. Now, tell us a bit about what you get, because obviously it's salary for three years, is that right? That's correct. Salary for three years. Yep. Um, and in addition to that, an extra $100,000 a year for research costs. So that makes a big
big difference to me. Mm. It enables me to support staff um, in my team and also take on experiments that are a little more costly that we wouldn't normally be able to do. So it's um, not only is it a big sort of confidence boost getting mm. that support from the university, it um, is enabling us to do some research that I think will make a difference to female reproductive health. Yeah. Now, we're going to jump into that in just a moment. The... Um I mean, this must have been a highly contested fellowship. I can't imagine three of you apply. No, so looking around the Institute, there is really a wealth of talent. Um, Many, many women put in applications, and I'm sure they were all worthy. And so that's, I think, why I felt particularly surprised and Mm. lucky that I received it. So it's Um, it's not luck. I think you're just good. Uh, So so maybe maybe there's a bit of that. Yeah, but I wouldn't like to take away from any of the other women in the Institute who I think are also very, very talented. Um, And there's just so much potential there. And it's really important to support women during the stage of their career. Mm. Now, there's only one of these fellowships. I mean, hopefully more funding will become available down the track for more of these because Mm. it is, as, as you were saying, that... It's, it's the salary, which is one thing. So you have to stop worrying for a moment about where your next paycheck's coming Absolutely. from, which is what most researchers at your level are doing all the time. Mm-hmm. But in addition to that, the startup funds, I mean, that's equivalent to getting a, a, a small-ish but a decent NHMRC grant. Yeah, that's correct. Mm-hmm. Um, so $100,000 goes a long way in research. Yeah. Um, and it's really important to have that stability over three years. Mm. So you um, can plan experiments in advance. So yeah. it's, it's very generous. Yeah. Excellent. Well, now, let's get into your research. So you, I mean, you're particularly interested in the sort of reproductive lifespan of women. Mm-hmm. Um, so tell us, first of all, I mean, this is something that I find curious because back in the days, and I always say this, you know, but back in the days when we were on the savannah, you know, <laughs> we probably got eaten or, or died of some awful thing, an infection in our teeth or whatever, before we tried to have a child when we were 70. You know, this stuff was happening when we were fairly young. Right. So we evolved Mm-hmm. to have children fairly young, presumably, didn't we? Is that is that right? Is that fair to um, say? Or? Look, it's not really my area of expertise, but I think what my lab is really interested in is trying to understand what determines how many eggs are present in a woman's mm-hmm. ovary. Yep. Um, because that will ultimately determine, determine how long she will be fertile for, right. able to have kids for, yep. but also in the quality of those eggs. And so when I'm talking about quality, what I'm really meaning is the ability of the eggs that are in the ovary to produce a healthy baby. Yep, yep. Um, and so what's really interesting about women and different to men, obviously, is that men can continue to produce sperm throughout their life, which is great for them. Yep. Women can't do this. So women are born mm. with all of the eggs they will ever have in their ovaries. And then after birth, there's a steady decrease in the number of eggs that are present. And when that supply gets to a critical low threshold, then they'll become um, infertile. And about 10 years later, they'll enter menopause. And so what's interesting is we don't know what controls how many eggs are present Mm. in the ovary, how long the fertile lifespan is regulated. And it's really important in Australia now because around one in five women don't start their families until after the age of 35 when the eggs are really diminishing and the quality is diminishing. Now, now it seems to... I'm not sure if this is oversimplifying it, but, you know, you have a certain number when you start, you ladies, and you, you lose a certain number each month. Yes. And, you know, if you do the numbers... Can you not just work out, okay, at this age, you're done? So, or is it different for, is it like, is so it happening different rates? I mean, what's going on? Yeah. yeah, there are lots of factors that contribute to how <coughs> rapidly that reserve of ovarian follicles is lost throughout reproductive life. Um, things like smoking. 
right. really bad for your ovarian reserve. Please don't smoke. Um, environmental chemicals, really bad for your ovarian reserve. Um, also, women are born with a different supply of eggs, and we don't really know um, the genes that are involved in that yet, but we do know there is a genetic factor. So some women are simply born with more eggs than others, but we have no way of determining how many eggs an individual woman has at the start of right, their life. Right. So we've got no way of knowing how long they're going to be fertile for. Now, here's a question for you. I find these things in biology. You know, I'm a physics guy, so I find this <laughs> stuff fascinating. At some point in our development, or in a woman's development, the body produces these eggs. Mm-hmm. Why can't we turn that back on later, that process? So I think people would really like to be able to do that and there um, has been some research that has suggested that there is in fact an ovarian germline stem cell mm-hmm. that's present in the ovary and able to produce new eggs later in life under certain circumstances. However, that research is still highly controversial. Mm, I remember reading about that. Yeah. yeah, and I think most of us still are, are somewhat sceptical that that can happen. Um, so interestingly, we're actually born with far more eggs than we ever use. Um, we probably ovulate around 400 Mm-hmm. eggs throughout our life um, and we're born with you know a couple of million so we, we we start off with much more than we ever le- need but many of those are lost during development for really unknown reasons possibly because they're not very good eggs and so we just mm-hmm. get rid of them so we don't have the risk of using these eggs to produce offspring yeah so now what specifically have you guys been looking at in the lab i mean what what have you found in, in relation to this a lovely open-ended question yeah <laughs> um, so, <laughs> so one of the things that we're really interested in is trying to um really determine this correlation between the egg number and the length of the fertile lifespan so we know that um under certain circumstances when the ovarian reserve is depleted such as during cancer treatment that that can reduce the fertile lifespan and result in early loss in fertility um, and end up in an early menopause but it hasn't really been understood if you can do the opposite can we increase the number of eggs that a woman has and potentially prolong prolong fertility so we have these very interesting mice in the lab that are deficient in a specific protein that's involved in egg death we've deleted um, that protein and these mice end up with lots more eggs than they would normally have Mm -hmm. and interestingly they have about a 20% prolonged fertility and so it turns out that converse situation is actually true you can increase the ovarian reserve and this will result in prolonged fertility by about 20%. So if you sort of put that in terms of a woman, 20% longer fertility mm, is actually a lot. significantly yeah. longer. And, and, and would take care of, when you mentioned this idea of well into their 40s and so forth, yeah. because so it takes care of a lot of that time period. It, it would. Mm. Um, so of course these are studies in mice, but it certainly proves the concept that if, that if there was a way of increasing the number of eggs in a woman, potentially that could lead to a longer fertility. And I think it's important not only to think about ovaries and ovarian reserve in terms of fertility only. These follicles are also um, necessary for producing essential female hormones and in particular estrogen. Mm. And so estrogen um, is important for bone health, brain health, heart health. And so if we can have ovaries functioning for a little bit longer, then ultimately that's going to be a huge benefit to females' general health. Yep. So Carla, you were mentioning before about cancer and obviously one of the concerns with cancer is that it can affect your fertility very strongly. So is that part of the thing that you're looking at, seeing if what you can actually do to help these patients that have cancer? So we do a lot of work um, looking at new strategies to preserve um, ovarian function and protect the ovarian reserve during cancer. So unfortunately, um, some of the cancer treatments that women receive are damaging to their ovaries and in particular, they cause a depletion in that ovarian reserve. Um, And so often a female cancer 
cancer survivors find it really difficult to have children later in life. Mm. Um, so we're very interested in trying to understand exactly what it is that these cancer treatments do to the ovary. How do they damage the ovary? How do they deplete the ovarian reserve? Because if we understand that, then perhaps we can develop some really exciting new treatments for these women mm. um, to enable them to have family later in life should they choose to. And so one of the uh, PhD students in my lab has a really interesting project um, where she has identified a key protein that when switched on on causes oocyte depletion or egg depletion when exposed to chemotherapy. And what she's found is if that you delete that single protein in a mouse, you can expose them to a really high dose of chemotherapy, and which would normally cause death of all of the eggs. Um, in these mice, all of these eggs actually survive. And not only that, they go on to be fertile, they have a normal fertile lifespan, so there's no early loss of fertility, and the offspring, the mice, all appear to be healthy. That's amazing. It's yeah. absolutely amazing. It's, amazing. it's, it's yeah. kind of, you're taking a piece out and yes. making them better. You're not yeah. adding anything. No. So the, key, a piece out. so the key thing is that this is a protein that's important for their death. So the chemotherapy triggers this protein in the eggs and the eggs then all die. So if you mm. move that, remove that key protein, then they all survive. Mm. And so then the risk is, okay, we've got a whole bunch of eggs that we've made survive, but are they really damaged? Yeah. Um, so another big project in the lab is looking at the ability of eggs to actually repair all sorts of damage and to see how good they are. Turns out eggs are really good at fixing damage. Mm. Look, it's fascinating stuff, Colour, and I can see, you know, just, just hearing you talk about this, why? they've chosen you for this award because um, it's, it's obviously an area that affects, well, all of our population, <laughs> yes, let's say, yes. and, and especially people who are compromised physically in some way in a period. And, but still, you know, it's one of the great things today is that we can get people through so many different cancers that are out there, Absolutely. but you don't want it completely destroying mm -hmm. the potential of them having families and so forth afterwards. So, Absolutely. look, I hope this um, continues to go in the direction of this. Congratulations again on getting the Outstanding Women in Science Fellowship, and we hope to chat to you again. Thank you very much. Dr. Carla Hutt is uh, from the Monash Biomedical Discovery Institute at Monash University and is the first recipient of the Outstanding Women in Science Fellowship, which is specifically to help women get to the glorious heights they should. In the studio with us now is Dr. Lauren Sosdian. She is the Translating Research at Melbourne Program Coordinator and a PhD, which just finished her PhD and is part of the Carlton Connect Program at the University of Melbourne. Lauren, welcome to Triple R. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Now, we're going to start off talking about your research work before we get on to what's happening down at Carlton Connect because um, our Lauren in the studio, and I realise this is a bit confusing, we've got a two, two, doc, two Dr. Two Dr. Lauren's. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and we thought one was enough. Um, but you, you work um, on knee osteoarthritis. Now, this is something I suppose most of us are going to have to deal with at some stage in our lives. Tell us what, what's happening in, in terms of the knee when we get osteoarthritis. Because you get that through throughout your body in various you know, ways. What's going on with the knee specifically? Yeah, yeah. so there's sort of a range of different things that you can have. You can have structural damage and um, also symptoms as well. You can get pain and knee stiffness is quite common. Um, but I guess when you look at the, the structure of the knee and when you diagnose it on an X-ray, um, you can see a, a loss of cartilage or the presence of um, osteophytes on the bone. And so what ends up happening is that sort of nice cushiony cartilage in your knee is slowly wearing away, which then leads to a lot of pain and knee stiffness as well. Mm. Now, now, you've looked specifically at some of the surgical responses to this um, because every, I don't know, every time I hear the word arthroscope, is that right? Um, people always go, oh, yeah, it didn't work out so well. <laughs> is, this, I mean, is this just a myth or is it, is it one of those operations that 
not a great deal of people coming out of well. Um, well, I actually looked at uh, knee replacements, so sort For of the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, sort of the yeah further along down the line. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's sort of people with really end stage arthritis where they, none of the other treatments are working. All the pain medicine um, and the physio that they've probably been getting for 20, 30 years has kind of stopped um, being effective. So yeah, then they go in to get the whole knee taken out and a new one put in. Okay, so. and, and, and what's the results there? I mean, what do we see? Is it effective? That's an excellent question and uh, what my research really focused around. So. I guess if you look at sort of numbers, around one in 10 of us will end up getting a knee replacement, um, which is quite quite large numbers. <laughs> yep, yeah, so, yeah, and then... There's five of us in here. <laughs> yeah. so, Hope it's not me. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, and then um, out of that one in 10, about 30% of people still report that they have pain and knee stiffness after surgery. So that is quite a large um, percentage of people. And so the research that uh, I was looking on, sort of the broad picture, is looking at how do we understand why some people don't improve with surgery? Hmm. Uh, um, what do you mean knee stiffness? It's it's a metal joint now. How is that stiff? I, I just like I understand how arthritis works, but how does that type of pain work once the knee's mechanical? That's a great question. Um, so, I guess when you have the when you get the joint replaced, you don't have as great of a range of motion as you would normally with a knee. So people can't like you. I mean, you can't kneel. Um, you can't. Um, do a lot of things that you would normally be able to. And I think when, when people come in for the surgery and they think, oh yeah, I'm getting a brand new knee, it's going to be great. And then they sort of, it's, it's patient expectation management, I think at the, at the end of the day is one of the big um, things that we're mm. dealing with. Has, has there been much improvement in the technology of the replacement? So um, yeah, from what it was, say, 15 years ago, can they do more in terms of the range of movement, movement now? So it's pretty, it's actually... Uh, stayed the same. I'm, I mean, you know, tweaks here and there, and I think that's something that we're sort of looking at. So um, one of the things I looked at in my research is um, gender differences. So the differences between men and women and their um, the size of their knee and the different anatomy um, from a woman compared to a man. And so there have been some... Um, knee replacements that are now tailored and so they're sort of looking at doing personalized knee replacements because that that's one of the things i was thinking of when when you asked that question mm. is this idea of mm. i take an mri of my knee before yep. i go in there and i call up ray and he you know fires up his 3d printer and you know two <laughs> hours later you know peter chung and vincent's is, is putting a new knee in for me and it's exactly like my old knee are we, are we sort of uh, i mean presumably this isn't a, you know, uh, can you get me a size number four from the shelf? This looks like a size number four. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, how are we doing this? How is this happening at the moment? Yeah, so at, at the moment it is sort of, um, I guess, like shoe, shoe sizes, right? So you kind of, you go yeah. in and you kind of, you can kind of get something similar, but not perfect. And so I guess that, but that's the, the trend that research is going on into now is more personalized medicine. Yeah. And so looking at a lot of factors like weight as well is a big um, consideration take into account when you so you're looking at, at what happens after the replacement and i remember sitting through a, a public lecture years ago with uh, marcus pandy when he just moved to melbourne uni showing and he opened up his public lecture with a video that had audio tracks on it for a knee replacement surgery and you know not being <laughs> yeah. from a medical background that was a little tough to get through and then when the power tools sounds start coming into play oh, yeah um it, it's quite a traumatic <laughs> surgery yes so is is there any correlation with the recovery and whether or not people still complain with pain does it track with the health of the individual not just weight but age or their ability to heal and recover after that surgery because it's not a 
It's not a minor thing to get a knee replaced. Uh, no, and I think that's one of the reasons why I'm not a medical doctor. I think <laughs> <laughs> that those kind of surgeries are quite terrifying. Um, but that, yeah, that is a really great question. I guess looking at how, um, like, after surgery care and, and the physio um, treatments that you get after surgery and how well people adhere to those treatments after surgery, that definitely will play a role in your outcomes. Yeah, well, I mean, just more broadly, what what defines a successful knee replacement? I mean, I, that seems like a broad question, but, you know, is it is it that people don't have any pain? Should they still expect some pain? You were talking about the fact that you can't get down on your knees anymore. Obviously, that's still a successful knee. Yeah, it's yeah, a big yeah. change, but it's still a successful knee <coughs> replacement because for whatever reason. I mean, what, what, how do you define whether it's been a success or not? Yeah, I think that's, well, that's something as well that I, I brought up in the discussions of some of the papers that I was working on is that there is no concrete mm. um, way of how we decide, uh, define what a successful surgery is. But I guess one of the big considerations that you have to take into account is at what level they're starting at before surgery. Yeah. So if you kind of look at, all right, well, everyone improves, you know, 50%, but if they're starting at, you know, they can't even get down the stairs and out the door, whereas someone just sort of has knee twinges mm. and just maybe you know, has a better chance of getting into surgery earlier. It's That's definitely a massive thing is the patient expectations and what level you're starting at before surgery. Because if everyone has the same level of improvement but starts at a lower um, mm. baseline. And presumably the cause too. I mean, what, what caused the knee problems must factor mm. in there somehow. And, and so what you're really looking for is indicators of risk so what yep. so I'm, I'm a patient i come in i'm thinking of a knee reconstruction you know just i just put the boat whatever else <laughs> my next thing's the knee and <clears throat> maybe in the other order yeah. um, <laughs> you know but i want to know before i come in and, and let you start using your power tools yep <laughs> you know am i am i going to have a lot of pain afterwards because i because I, I i presume in some people's cases they don't have so much pain but restriction of movement mm. so you don't want to give up one and trade off the other presumably is that yeah right? exactly um well i guess that's what i was doing with my research is the the in the grand scheme of things we would like to be able to do that to say all right well we're looking at this range of factors you know for you compared to um dr lauren and saying okay well how can you expect to be different um and how well you do with the surgery and so i specifically look at um the knee movement and so the forces going through the knee and how the knee moves when you're walking and you can do that a number of different ways. So you can actually put in um, an instrumented knee replacement that has sort of tiny computer inside and can tell you all of those things. But that's not realistic for the majority mm. of people. And so um, we use sort of motion capture technology like they use in movies like Lord of the Rings to create Gollum. So we stick a whole bunch of markers on people and they kind of come in and literally just walk up and down the lab for a couple of hours. <laughs> it's real fun. And, um, and uh, afterwards, so you can go and analyze the data and then you can have a look at what the knee is doing when you're walking. And there's sort of certain little clues, like the knee might be moving um, uh, front front to back differently to someone else. And so those tiny little clues um, are what I was looking at from my PhD. And then we look at how that changes with surgery. So, okay, they were moving this way before surgery, but now with the surgery, they're moving this way. Do they have more or less pain compared to somebody else? Mm. So we're kind of taking those knee movements and the forces in the knee and then trying to relate it to pain and knee stiffness afterwards and trying to see if we can um, look at patient outcomes as well. And are you seeing some correlation there? I mean, are you starting in the data you're starting to see that you might be able to do that? Um, yeah, so there have been uh, quite a lot of studies in this area. And I guess one of the things that we still need to... Um, 
decide on or figure out is, is what, what types of knee movements are really correlated to the pain and the patient um, outcomes after surgery. Because I think that's, mm. that's something that's not quite established yet because there's a, I mean, as you can imagine, there's a whole range of different motions you can look at and different vari- variables. Um, I mean, you can have 30, 40 variables in a, <laughs> in a data analysis. So. so I get a bit of an ache in my yeah. left knee sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know, I know, people probably do this, but you know, I, when I kneel down, I always kneel on my left knee flat, you know, and yep. I think right-handed people tend to do that. So you, you get you know you get a sore left knee and I'm thinking oh, I don't want to replace this knee. I'm hearing this stuff from you. I'm thinking, geez, this is going to be shocking. I'm going to take care, better care of my knees now. <laughs> That's bad. Um, Lauren, before we let you go, just tell us a bit about this um, new translating research at Melbourne program that you're doing in Carlton Connect. What's what's that all about? Um, yeah, so we just kicked off with the pilot program last year. So we're looking at helping researchers at the University of Melbourne commercialise their research. So trying to give them um, frameworks and the tools to really be able to assess the commercial potential. So see if, you know, this research that's been amazing, exciting, they've been working on for 10, 15 years, can it actually have a commercial impact outside of mm. the university? Okay, so. uh, that sounds really good. Well, thanks so much for coming and chatting to us and um, good luck me. with the, uh, you know, get that knee stuff sorted out because, yes. <laughs> you know, the, the pregnant woman sitting next to you, I can tell has got, you know, concerns yeah. <laughs> down the track. I'll do my best. <laughs> yeah, do your best. Dr. Lauren Sostian? Uh, Sostian. Yep, Sostian. Okay, right, yeah. yeah. Well, geez, we're <laughs> from Carlton Connect at the University of Melbourne. Three, triple, Yeah, you are listening to 3 R. It's Einstein to go-go. We had a few minutes left, and I thought we'd just finish by discussing the planet formerly known as Pluto. <laughs> yeah, is that right? The Pluto, Pluto the formerly, formerly known, as, known planet. as a planet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Same diff. Yeah, same <laughs> Well, look, there's, there's a bit of a, a push at the moment um, from uh, uh, various people, but um, in particular um, some of the, the members that were part of the New Horizons mission because, of course, you know... Uh, Pluto was downgraded not long before the probe went past and saw this awesomeness that is Pluto. Mm. And some of the elements of the International Astronomical Union's definition of a planet, which are what have been used to downgrade Pluto to dwarf planet status, um, are somewhat interesting. So, for example, no extrasolar body, planet, um, actually classifies as a planet according mm. to those definitions, which is which is somewhat problematic. Um, there are other elements of that are interesting, like, for example, if you're in the outer solar system, you have, you have to have cleared your orbit of debris to be classified as a planet. Now, for the big, for the big planets like mm. Neptune and, and Jupiter and, and Uranus and Saturn, mm. no problem, mm. whoppers. Um, but for a small, small object like Pluto, mm. um, you actually need to be bigger. Now, if you're in the inner solar system like Mercury, which is pissy small, mm. no problem. Yeah. Sun did it for you. Yeah, mm. Mercury didn't do it. Yeah. It's, it's not Pluto's fault. But the classification system and then has this implicit environment in it. It's yeah, not, that's right. It's not, are you a planet? It's, are you a planet near something big enough to help you clear your orbit if you're small? Yeah, so if we grab Pluto right now, move to the next uh, Mercury. In fact, let's just swap them. Pluto would be a planet. Yeah. And so this is one of the arguments that's come up, is that exactly as you said, yeah. Dr. Ray, it's more about the environment than the object itself. Mm. And so what, what some of these guys are pushing for is the idea that if, if these things are significant enough to form a sphere or spherical object like, like the Earth, the Moon, and so forth, then that should be enough to classify them as planets because mm. they're big. So my question is, so Pluto has a satellite, right? Charon? Yeah, Charon. Yeah. Yep. Charon, Charon? It has five, actually. Five, okay. Yeah. But... 
I thought Sharon was kind of the same size as Pluto-ish. It is smaller. Okay, so, okay. But that's the satellite, therefore it's not counted. So I think it's about a third. I mean, so our moon's a sixth of us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's still pretty big. So it's interesting. Okay. Sharon isn't quite as spherical as Pluto. No, it's not. Yeah. I just wasn't sure if it was orbiting Pluto or if it wasn't, because then wouldn't that be? Okay, all right. Well, you know, two objects similar size, I mean, they kind of orbit each other, right? But they both orbit the sun. So is Sharon a planet? But that's just that's just mm. dynamics. And yeah, in fact, yeah, yeah. you know, one of these guys sure. said, in in one sense, he, he just wants many of them to be called planets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He'd even call the moon a planet in mm. a sense because of its physical mm. dimensions. It's mm. odd, you know, what it's managed to mm. form this nice shape. Mm. You know, all of these things. So mm. it's interesting. I don't think this is completely dead. I think that the the fact that New Horizons showed that Pluto had dynamic processes going on, it had an atmosphere, had mm-hmm. all of these really cool things, and all of a sudden we we declassified it. Mm. Uh, you know. And yet Mercury, yeah, you know, I'm not a fan of Mercury. (laughs) (coughs) Just not a fan. Um, So Camp Pluto is really coming For me, the the planets of most interest to me, you know, well, the moon Europa, awesome. Mm. Yeah. Um, But Venus, very interesting planet. People have really not paid much attention. Everyone's interested in Mars. To me, Venus is, you know, it's what Mm. Earth could be. You know, it's See, Mercury, really I think, is amazing because it's tidally locked, right? Like, it's, yeah. isn't it? Boring. Yeah. Oh, that's great. What are you talking about? You've got, like, one dark side that's, you know, minus whatever degrees yeah, and the yeah. other one's just baking. Yeah. I think that's fascinating. And for everyone yeah. out there, just in case you're wondering, no, Mercury's not the hottest place. No, no, no. No, no. It's no. Venus. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's CO2. Yeah, because yeah, yeah, of CO2. Yeah. That's right. It's incredibly hot. So it has an atmosphere. It has a yeah. big atmosphere. It's cool stuff. It makes all the difference. Oh, God, we could talk about Those climates all day, couldn't we? We're going to have to hand over to the team from Edith, though. So thanks so much, folks, for listening to Einstein Gogo today. We're going to chat to you again next week. Dr. Lauren, good to see you. Good to be here. Dr. Ailey, good luck with your adventures. Thank you very much. Thank you for not um, doing anything inappropriate. No. <laughs> the, towel, the towel held up. We're all good. Every time you put your hand on your, <laughs> on my belly, on your yes. belly uh, Dr. Ray and I kind of, I saw both of us kind of just tensed up a little bit. So, yeah. Dr. Ray, good to see you. We'll see you again soon. You too, Dr. Shane. We're going to hand over to either folks. Have a great Sunday. Remember, science is everywhere. And thanks for listening to 3 R. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.